Kelly Slater. You know, sometimes I just can't sleep because I'm so excited about surfing the next day. With surfing being added to the Olympics for the first time ever in summer 2020, the 11-time world champ tells us what it would mean to add the Tokyo Games to his resume at 48 years old. If I do qualify, I think it'd be great. I'd love to. The Florida native still travels the globe to compete. Slater recently welcomed us to his newly minted surf ranch, three hours north of LA, for an exclusive look at the technology that may change the sport of surfing forever. You're potentially going to spend all the money you spent your whole life making to go and try to build this thing that you hope works. All that's coming up next, right here on the In-Depth with Graham Bensinger podcast. I wanted to start by talking about the surf ranch because when we last did the interview in uh, 2016 was before uh, the, you know this place opened. So I, I want to talk uh, about your guy Matt, uh, who used to shave your boards back in the day. I think one day he calls you about this wave technology. Oh yeah, my shaper, yeah, Matt. Uh, um, what, what does he say and explain how from that point forward you couldn't stop thinking about it? Yeah, so Matt, uh, Matt shaped my boards for many years when I was a kid and. Anyways, we've always been good friends, kind of like a big brother to me. And he called me one day in about 2004 or five and said, you got to see this wave technology. And long story short, it just got my brain turning over and turned into this long process of trying to build this wave. And it took us essentially 10 years to make it happen. Why did it get to a point where your partner basically says to you, you know, we got to get off the pot? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> Can we cuss? Are you going to edit that? We can, we, yeah. <laughs> we can. No, um, we we worked for so long to try to get someone to believe in this project and what we were doing, and and uh, to to help us fund it and build it, and and see the bigger picture of it. And uh, essentially, that that wasn't happening. And and uh, Jeff and I thought we had you know just enough money to to make one where we could run at least one wave before it broke <laughs> you know just something to show what this technology was the feasibility of it and we looked at all the, the, the all the possible ways of doing it between he and I and he essentially just said look we we either need to shut this project down or go build it ourselves and and uh, that was the that was the scary moment really buying and then finding the property and building it and and um, I wasn't. I didn't have any doubts about the technology and it working. I was just. Wait, what was it about it that, that made that moment so scary, though? Oh, I mean, think about it. You're potentially going to spend all the money you spent your whole life making to go and try to build this thing that you hope works, or once it does, that someone gets it. And it's uh, it's a pretty confronting thing. You really got to believe in, in the in the thing you're doing. And was it that big of an investment for you? Uh, yeah, it was a big investment, very big investment. But uh, that was the, that was, as that all occurred was when we found uh, further funding for it. So it, it did, we didn't really have the wave first. We kind of, uh, as, as it developed, we were able to find that help. But we were going forward either way. So um, uh, I, I guess we were sort of lucky in that regard. The construction workers, what would they tell people if asked what they're oh, doing? What happened was the, we first were in escrow on a property in Bakersfield and it was a fish pond, like a fish farm. Mm -hmm. And um, so essentially we were going to use that same permit to cover what we're doing here. And uh, we, we found this property which was better fit for us. And um, so we called this fish pond for a long time. And it's still, that's still, I guess, kind of the 
the secret code for this place. The secret secret spot is called Fish Pond. Why was it important to keep it secretive, though? Because that, that, I mean, that was part of the... I wasn't too worried about keeping it secretive. No? The other guys were. Yeah, I wasn't, well, why I wasn't worried about worried it. Why were they worried about it? Uh, they, I think they were just worried. They just, in case it didn't work, if it didn't work and we just shut it down, then we didn't have to mention anyone that we had anything other than a fish pond. <laughs> <laughs> the first time riding a wave here, tell about it. First time riding a wave. In fact, uh, if you can get your hands on the first wave I ever rode, I'll, 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 uh, maybe I'll give you the first board I rode out here. We, no one's seen the footage of the first wave because I no? stood up and it passed me by and I fell. <laughs> so, anyways, yeah, one day I'll show that footage. But you know, you, what, uh, Instagram you versus reality, right? What would you do wrong? <laughs> oh, I didn't know. I. I didn't know where the wave broke, and I just asked um, Noah, who's, who was our project manager, still, still, is, still is the manager of the company. Um, I asked Noah, I said, where does it break? Where does it first start to whitewater? And he said, oh, I think it's right by that pole over, you know, sit right there. And so I thought, I'll catch it as soon as it starts to break. Not realizing that the wave is still getting up to speed and, and, and growing. And um, so I really didn't understand the mechanics of the wave. So I sat too deep on the wave. You know, you got a minute long ride, I didn't need to be in the first one second of the ride. I could have watched it for a couple of seconds to make sure I was safe, but. All right, was that humiliating at all? Uh, it was a little bit humiliating because there was like 30, 40, maybe 50 people watching and filming and stuff. And, and I just, I sort of felt, um, I almost felt worse for them because it was such a buildup, like the wave's gonna be ridden. And they'd been watching the wave for three or four days before I got here and knew that you know, they were just waiting for me to come in and surf it. Bad feelings all around for about 10 minutes because we had to, it, it used to be about 10 minutes in between waves, so it wasn't for about another 10 minutes that I could ride one. Describe the emotion of posting that video online and the reaction that you got. It was incredible. The, 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 the only problem with the video, uh, that all the stuff that we posted was it was a day after the world title had been decided. And we had filmed this on December 5th, and I wanted to put it out right away, like as soon, you know, two days later, whatever. And um, the, the team decided that they didn't want to interfere with the world title, uh, you know, any of that stuff, you know, distract from that. And uh, so I said, yeah, fair enough, of course, so we'll wait till it's done. And then the day after it was done, they said, all right, let's post it now. And then everyone thought that I was doing that to try to mess with the world title, uh, you know, um, happenings, which wasn't the case. I didn't really think. I just thought, okay, that's done. Um, you know, maybe we should have waited a week or something, uh, just to sort of be politically correct or, or respectful enough to Adriano, who who had just won the world title. But I don't think any of us foresaw how uh, viral the thing was going to be. Or we knew that people were going to be like, oh, that's super cool. But we didn't know that it was going to, you know, it sort of took on a life of its own. And that was, I mean, not to sound corny, but one of the more enjoyable experiences you ever had, right? Just the feedback you got from that? Yeah, really overwhelming. But we had we had a problem in our, <clears throat> in our design at the time. And uh, essentially what we designed broke after the first day. So we had to shut down. That was December. We didn't run another wave until May. So we essentially had to sort of break down the whole thing and redo it because <laughs> we, we did make some mistakes on how we built the reef and stuff. Why did you wonder if after you created this, if you just opened the door to something that would never be able to be closed again? I don't know. There's some there's a purity in just going surfing every day, you know, getting, getting in your car and just driving along the coast and finding a nice wave and 
it's it's a it's a pretty personal thing you know and then I mean we search all around the world for a perfect wave you know to then sort of just have it like at the push of a button is it, there's a there is some sort of funny feeling about it. there's something really exciting about it but on the other on the other side there's I, I just wondered if there was something real negative about it or not maybe I was a little oversensitive to it but I think it's all come out in the wash I think it's just you know just another way to go surfing it's it's not taken away from the ocean or anything I think it's adding to that whole experience how do you think it changes the sport it it definitely allows for a different type of competition you know we run a different uh, uh, format for everyone and the scoring is a little different the judges all uh, judge just from video not watching it live which is a first so it's it's set up to be more like maybe a time trials or a display of all your different skills at once um, and I think it's I think it's a work in progress I think it's something that needs to be worked out I don't think we have a perfect formula for it at this point um, I think there's a I think there's a chance to have a really good formula for it but I don't think we're quite there yet and what are features you'd like to incorporate in future pools that you do I would like in the pool design any of the wave designs to be sort of custom made like ordering a sandwich or whatever you know what, I do want, I want a little of this I don't want that I want it to be this long and have the wave kind of section here and there and you know if people can can do that they they sort of formulate their own way to to uh, to surf what's involved with making that happen there's just some design elements that can go into the you know the way the swell is formed how the bottom is made um, the speed and size of the wave the angle that it peels at all those sort of things that those could all be customized to each surfer. That's already kind of happening. As it evolves more and more, each person could go and sort of sit behind the computer, look at the software with somebody who knows what they're doing and say, hey, let's try this and this and this. Yep. And uh, I, I think that's the exciting thing about the future of this. How do you view your competition? I got no bone to pick with any of them, you know? I think it's it's all good. I think the, the, the advent of having these technologies is each of them are good for the other in a way, you know, because it makes you, oh, I want to try that one, I try that one, and and they're all made for different purposes. This one was made to be a long sort of point break barrel wave, you know, that I just envisioned making a really perfect wave, like you would draw in your books in school mm -hmm. when you're a kid, um, when you're dreaming about surfing. Um, there's some others that are just more high occupancy, you know, there's more waves to ride. So each of them offers something a little different. Do you find, I mean, you're a competitive guy, does, the fact that you have competition out there motivate you with this sort of stuff? Um, a little bit, a little bit. I'm, I'm a little different these days, you know, everyone, everyone kind of uh, imprinted this thing that I'm the most competitive guy in the world, and I have been probably at some times in my life for sure, but uh, I don't know, I don't think of it necessarily as competition now, I just think of it as like evolution, you know, everyone's sharing ideas and, and I think that they're all going to help each other. You've said before you've kind of self-diagnosed yourself with uh, addictive uh, personality disorder and borderline OCD. Um, Maybe something like that. Yeah, <laughs> uh, like why, why did you think that? I don't know. I, I just I've always been really headstrong in my goals, and I've been a perfectionist since I was a little kid, and and um, I always wanted to get better and better and better at everything I do. So I think when you're that way, you become obsessive about the thing you the, the things you do. What is it though about what you do that's borderline OCD or? I don't know. Every, I, I think everyone I know is, has been diagnosed as either ADD or OCD or something. <laughs> I'll just join the, I'll just jump in on the, on the club. How, how <laughs> do you think it helped you? 
when you're constantly thinking about one thing, when you have that focus, ideas come into your mind about how to change it. You know, you it would get boring if it was just the same thought over and over and over again. So I, I think that it's something you're obsessed about. Um, if if used the right way, is a good thing. You know, someone like Nikola Tesla in history could be regarded as OCD about all the things that he invented. Um, and, you know, he invented numerous things that changed the world, so... Um, I mean, I, many I, of the great innovators or champions of our time and past generations have, right, a, a little something off. Yeah, I think you got to be a little bit off, like, somewhere <laughs> to make life interesting. <laughs> was there a time in which you recognized that not everybody uh, was that way? Oh, yeah. You know, I would travel with friends around the world and I'd be staying up late at night like drawing fins and working on surfboard designs and that kind of thing. And, and uh, one of my friends in particular was like, why do you do that? Well, Mike, what are you doing? Like, I never even think to do that. And I'm, I don't know, it's just a thing that interests me. I don't know if it's good or bad. Tell about losing 17 straight games of ping pong and crying. Oh yeah, on my 18th birthday, I lost 17 straight games. My, uh, my best buddies and my mom got together and bought me a ping pong table for my 18th birthday. And uh, I, my one friend beat me like, I think, I think it was 17 times in a row. I think, he, I think he actually let me win the 18th game so we could go to bed about three in the morning. But yeah, that was personal. But it's ping pong. Yeah, it's ping pong, but it's, it's not ping pong. It's like, it's beating your friend. It's not really the ping pong game that bothers you. It's like losing to your friend, you know? You wanna, you wanna have one. When you have a competitive friend and you're both like equal in skill at something, it's, you just have to beat that person. I mentioned to you before this, I watched the Momentum Generation documentary last night, which I thought was great. And you said in it, at the time in your life where you were most competitive, you would have these ultimate highs and just terrible lows, and you went mm. through a period where you were depressed. Mm. Um, what were you depressed about? I had a really tough, like I was engaged when I was young and that broke up, that was really heartbroken over it. And I had a, I had a few uh, tricky relationship situations that were really tough for me. And, um, you know, I don't think I was mature enough to kind of handle those uh, the way I wish I could have. And, and uh, uh, surfing was kind of always that thing that brought me that high, you know, that, that, that uh, sort of made everything make sense to me. And there was, in the epiphany that you had, you said after uh, you won your fifth consecutive championship, breaking Mark Richards' record, just about the, the toll that your level of competitiveness had on you. Um, explain that. Being competitive is kind of a double-edged sword because you, you know, it can help you push more and more and more. You never lose that, that drive to, to uh, achieve what you're after. But um, you know, that can be confusing for people around you sometimes. There's a, there's a healthy balance in there somewhere. You know? And everyone's got to be responsible for their own feelings. You know? <laughs> So, um, it, it, look, when, you, when somebody sets out to have goals and achieve, achieve big things for themselves, there's, there's going to be some occasional hurt feelings around them because, you know, either you're not aware of how someone's feeling or, or you know, they're not happy with, you know, maybe your success or whatever. What do you think allowed you to find the balance? Yeah, just growing up, going through stuff, realizing that, you know, life's bigger than this or that. It's just going through love and loss and learning and you know I've lost a lot of friends uh, have passed away my father uh, a lot of friends to cancer suicide 
accidents, um, uh, all sorts of crazy, bizarre situations. Two months ago, I lost four friends in, in four weeks. It's, it's been a, a strange time in my life. When people pass away and you, you, you look back and kind of review their lives and your life and, and uh, start realizing, I guess, more and more what's important. You know, when you're young, you gotta go out in the world and find what is your thing. And then as you, as you get a, a little past all that or you achieve some of those things, you start to worry more about being happy and what matters. I was gonna say in terms of what's important, what's that for you? I think just trying to be clear-headed and treat people good and be happy. When you were uh, growing up after your parents were separated and dad was uh, out of the picture, uh, money was tight. Um, how much did you move uh, growing up? Well, you know, I lived in one house till I was 11 and then we, uh, well, actually maybe 13. And then we, we moved, we stayed in place for a couple years, and then we moved again for about a year, moved again, and we, we, we probably moved three or four or five times, like in my mid-teenage years. I mean, there were times when heat or hot water were unreliable, right? Uh, yeah, I mean, but, you know, we lived in Florida. It's not that cold, but some of the winters would get cold, and I, I remember a few times my mom just put in just enough money up, up the side to get oil to heat the house. We had this one heater and we'd be sitting there freezing and we didn't really have like winter clothes and stuff. You know, so We'd be really extra cold at those times. How satisfying was it to be able to buy the family a house though when you were in yeah, high school? Yeah, it was nice to, to be able to buy it. I bought a, a car and a house when I was 17, um, basically with cash. and. Um, I mean, that, and that's when the money is like real too. Like, yeah. what, what what was that like? It was it was nice. My mom sort of barely had lunch money for us when we were in elementary school. You know, we'd go to school with like some coins. She, my mom used to talk about later on. She would talk about how she would go turn the coins in at the bank. So we she, so we thought we had dollars, but uh, you know, she usually just had a lot of coins and she'd turn them in and give us a few bucks for lunch. Um, but, you know, I, look, I had it better than a lot of kids. Like, I mean, there's homeless people out there. I always had a roof over my head. My mom made it work somehow. She made 500 bucks a week, kept a roof over our head and fed us and, you know, raised three boys basically on her own. So, um, but I think the only reason I really talk about it is that, is that I try to let people know I appreciate what I have. Um, you know, I wasn't extreme, in extreme poverty. Um, or, or anything like that. I just, we just didn't, we didn't have any extra cash. And, you know, if we wanted to go on a trip, my mom would oftentimes sell something, you know, like she had a guitar, she had a banjo, a 1938 Gibson uh, gold top banjo. And it was like her prized possession. You know, one time I was gonna go surf the world championships and we didn't have the money and I didn't have, didn't have the sponsorship. So she sold the thing, you know, it's probably a $30,000 instrument now. And she sold it for like 500 bucks, 400 bucks or something like that. So. Did you recognize the significance of it? I didn't the time? then. Okay. I do yeah. now. You right. know, now I look at wow, that's that's pretty heavy. I mean, so your career t took off, you know, pretty quickly thereafter, and you're in your early twenties. You at that point, I think, made millions of dollars, and you realize you're broke. Um, I, yeah, I had made I had made good money for probably from the time I was about you know when I was sixteen, I started making some money. Um, maybe fifteen, I started making. A, you know, 100 bucks a week or something. And then 16, I started making a few hundred bucks a week. And then by the time I was 17, I was making pretty good money. Like, here's the thing, if you, if you grow up without any money, you don't really have good money skills. 
generally your family doesn't and so we didn't we just didn't have that skill and and know much about how to handle money so it's just that classic story you know go from rags to sort of riches and and then back to rags for a little while before you figure it out do you remember how you found out and what that feeling was yeah i do i do i don't i mean that's kind of personal I, um i don't like to talk about it because it, it it's a uh, it's I don't know, that's just something for, for me. I, but I, I feel like I learned the lesson. How did it make you feel? It really pissed me off, really pissed me off. I, I was just really, really upset. It, that, was a, that was something that took a long, long time to kind of come to grips with. But I look back at it and I go, luckily it happened when I was 21 years old or 22 years old and not when I was 35. Because at that age, at that age I was able to, you know, kind of re, reset my goals and and go okay look now i'm going to make some money i need somebody to kind of help me with financial planning and investing and to eventually get to a place where i kind of understood what i was doing and taking care of my future i was gonna say what do you think the best lesson you learned through all of that was just with regards to, to money? just to plan out have someone or multiple people you could trust that can give you a, a good idea of how to learn it yourself so you're not just totally entrusting someone else to invest and handle your money how much more money do you think you'd have today uh, had you decided to, uh, against uh, starting out or known? Oh, uh, a lot more. <laughs> yeah. I mean, look, the, the idea with out or known is um, I, I've made most of the money in my life from sponsorships, from clothing. Uh, we, in surfing, we don't make the bulk of our money from prize money. Prize money is like a tenth of what you make from sponsorships if you're doing real well. I didn't know much about the business, which seems like a kind of counterintuitive reason to start a business. <laughs> but uh, I had good people around me to, to help start Outer Known and, you know, design-wise and, and um, sustainability-wise. And, and that, that was a driving force behind Yeah, that was really. a driving force. So the, the driving force behind it was I, I wanted to know more about, you know, the thing that had been so lucrative for me in my life and, and do something responsible there. So that's, that was the idea behind starting Outer Known. And, um, yeah, yeah. I left a, a a really nice contract to do that, but I like like an eight-figure deal you left on the I table. I was making good money, but I, I I felt like it was the right thing, and it was something I was really passionate about and really wanted to be involved in, and and I'm really happy with. I, and the group of people we have together, they all believe in it, and we all we all really feel strongly that we we've, we've done the right thing and doing the right thing. What do you think will be involved with making it a success long term? Long term, at the end of the day, you have to make really good clothing, you know, that people like and it lasts. And uh, but also getting our message out about sustainability and why we started it and what our supply chains like and how we're socially compliant with our factories and everyone is fair labor certified and gets a living wage and and, and uh, which isn't common in no, the industry. No, it's not. Right. Look, I mean, we we launched and we were uh, priced a lot higher than what our endemic market is, and we got a lot of hate for it. Um, understandable, because people don't, don't know what goes into clothing, and they don't know what goes into um, the, the, all the conditions around making it. But every step of the way, everything we're doing costs two or three times more. Um, and, and essentially, that comes back to paying people to make your clothing, paying, paying people the right way. So fast fashion is just a thing that has become so commonplace, it's, you know, you walk into a Kmart and buy a $3 shirt. I mean, really think about where that was grown, all the people that touched that 
that uh, fabric from the time it was uh, grown in the field until it reached you. And how do you make something for that cheap that has come from the other side of the world? What's happened to date that you would say you're most proud of with Outerknown? Uh, I think that we're still in business. <laughs> yeah? Yeah. Just the fact that I mean, we're four years, five years on and we're in business. We started this thing just kind of on a whim. Let's just try this out and let's see if there's a place for it. And it was uh, very difficult at first, but enough people got it to understand. There's a lot of people who, who voiced that they felt alienated because they were fans of mine or supported me my whole life. And then I came out with something that wasn't necessarily accessible to them. Um, but the idea wasn't that I wanted to go make cheap clothing. I just didn't want to do it. Um, I wasn't trying to um, do something like above my means or anyone else's means either. It was just that it actually costs a lot more to do clothing that is environmentally friendly and socially compliant with factories and taking care of people. It just, it just costs a lot more. So our margins are lower, our prices are higher, and uh, that pisses people off. <laughs> but we've, we've been able to work our supply chain and get our volumes up. But, you know, of all the pieces we're doing, we're doing a maximum order of 300 pieces. So our volumes are tiny. Number one, it's hard to get into any kind of factory. They, they just won't take you unless you're going to do a lot of good business for them. Mm -hmm. And we're a small company, so there are very few factories that would take us. And then of those factories, so few are socially compliant and Fair Labor, Fair Labor Association certified. Um, so we really whittled ourselves into a corner there, and it was it was tough going to get started. But now that you actually went and visited the factory too to see, I've the visited a couple, and, yeah, yeah. But um, we have we have a couple people in the company that visit hand visit and handpick every person that works with us. Mm -hmm. So it's pretty labor intensive in that way, on our end. Um, but I would say that's that's probably the thing I'm most proud of. How do you view the Olympics? Uh, the Olympics, I'm not sure. I, the only thing I'm really worried about with the Olympics is there will be a few really great surfers left out because of the way the qualification process happens. Because look, Brazil's got like five of the top ten guys in the world right now. They're only going to be able to send two guys to the Olympics. Um, two or th maybe three maximum. Um, so there might be some people that are, are uh, worthy being left out. Uh, and then the waves might be real small. Japan's a bit tough that time of year. Um, this year, that same week that they're gonna run the Olympics next year, had nothing bigger than like waist-high surf. So it, it could be a real challenge for everyone involved. And you know, I hope that's not the case. And, uh, and, and that, you know, that brings up the conversation of uh, wave pool technologies. How surprised were you they didn't go that direction? I was pretty surprised. Um, I try not to make too strong of an opinion because I'm part of a company, but um, you know, and that would look very biased. But at the same time, I thought that we should have had that as a, as a possible uh, way to run in case the ocean wasn't going to provide. So I just think it's a good backup. And we're going we're gonna to go to countries, you know, if we're going to France. Um, depending on that time of year, you know, you can get real flat spells in the middle of summer. Maybe they would want to have a, some kind of wave technology available, um, whatever it is, but something approved by the IOC. And, um, I thought it would make a lot of sense for Japan because they're such a technologically advanced culture. Mm -hmm. And I just thought, wow, this would be something. They're, they're bringing a new sport in and they'll present it in a new way is kind of was, was my kind of thinking. But the, that didn't happen for whatever reason. But What challenges do you think uh, Japan has between now and the games and getting ready for surfing? Um, figuring out their radiation problem. That's 
one of them and <laughs> making sure we got enough waves to surf. And I don't know, they, they probably don't want me talking about that. <laughs> but it's a reality and it's, it's actually not a laughing matter. Um, the, 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 the cancer rates in the country have skyrocketed and they're not telling people about that. And that's from friends of mine who live there and or have moved out of the country because of it. How and, uh, concerned does that make you? I think it's a huge concern. Um, you know, and for surfers, uh, the, the Taiji Cove where they uh, round up the dolphins and either kill them or sell them to amusement parks is another issue. So there's, there's, a, few, there's a few things that I think won't be sort of politically correct that are spoken about during the games, and I think rightfully so. But, that, you know, that brings up bigger topics around the world around nuclear power and, and um, captive animals and, um, and the fact that we, we kill and eat so many animals around the world, and it's something that we all need to, to be aware of and, and, and do something about, I think. How do you make sure surfing stays in the Olympics long term? Uh, we just hope for good waves. If the waves are good, we'll put on a good show. It's pretty much that simple. But with the wave technology, it would be, it would be kind of a given. You know, not unlike the, uh, the, the whitewater kayaking. You know, they build a very um, structured um, course and they control the water flow exactly, so it's, it's exactly the same for everybody. And I think that's maybe a structure that, uh, as far as these wave technologies are concerned, it works really well potentially for the Olympics. I think, I, I think it's a kind of a no-brainer, really. What would it mean to you to represent your country in the Olympics? Um, it, should I qualify? If I do qualify, I think it'd be great. I'd love to, but, um, you know, it's not a shoe in I, I have to work. I have to do well the back half of this year. Um, and, you know, ultimately it may come down to um, a, a choice or a pick between myself and John John Florence, um, who's our you know, two-time and reigning world champion. Well, he actually, Medina is the reigning now, but John won the year prior, and uh, he was in the lead this year until he got injured. So I think, it's, I think it's only right that John's in the Olympics, and we'll, you know, see if I can figure it out too. What about the games do you think you'd most enjoy? The camaraderie of all the countries, you know, meeting all the different people around the world. Just being at the ISA Games last week and surfing with people from Afghanistan and um, Iran and, and, you know, all through the Middle East. That's the one thing, you know, we hear so much, and I would say most of us, probably including myself, are, are um, pretty uneducated uh, truly about the real issues in that part of the world. And um, when you see people surfing together, it kind of eliminates all that. It, just, it really disarms everybody. Like, we're all out there doing the same thing, not unlike music. Worst injury you've ever had? Uh, two years ago, I broke my foot really bad. And uh, I'm sort of just getting back from that. I'm still, still suffering from it a little bit. Um, I had two surgeries. I had two separate injuries. Um, so it was kind of like three injury events, really. So I, I broke my foot really bad. Displaced and shattered a couple bones. Um, and uh, I had a second surgery to take all the hardware out, which was like a whole other recovery event. And then as I was getting back to where I was starting to surf good again, because of all the scar tissue, I had a tear in my plantar fasciitis on the bottom of my foot, like turf toe, mm -hmm. essentially. And um, I would say that injury was probably more painful and longer lasting than the, than the bone break. Really? So, yeah, I struggled with that for a good six, eight months. Why? Oh, it's just, you ever had it? No. Yeah. 
you'll know when you get it. <laughs> <laughs> That's why. I mean, I still wake up in the mornings and sometimes stand on it and go, oh, I must have surfed too much yesterday or run a little bit or whatever. I'm, it's, there's just a lot of scar tissue. Um, I, had a, I had a sort of, I would say maybe undiagnosed um, or, or misdiagnosed injury as part of this. I had a lot of soft tissue damage that um, we didn't even know what it was. The bones were broken so badly, so uh, my foot's really compromised at this point. I mean, you can just see the, you can see the, the extra size of bone here, and this joint, the Liz Frank joint, doesn't really move. Yeah, mine's pretty locked in. It's like there's just so much uh, calcium buildup in that area that I don't know if it'll go away or not. But um, I get it worked on, sort of as maybe not quite as much as I can, but I, I carry a massage gun around and just massage the crap out oh, of it. Oh, do you? Yeah, and then you know I get a lot of people to work on it around the world, but. The plane flights don't help. I get a lot of swelling, and for the first 24 hours I land anywhere, my foot's really painful because it's gotten inflamed. Um, Do you think you made it worse by surfing too soon after probably, the injury? Probably, yeah, I'm sure I did, but I couldn't help myself. Yeah, that's what you do, you know? When you wake up in the morning, like, what are the lasting ailments that you'll have forever? I don't know. The foot, the foot I don't think will ever be the same. I have a I tore my labrum, my hip, a few times when I was younger and had a surgery on that, and I've always kind of had effects of that. And then I, I have scoliosis in my back, and I've, I've just had like a sore lower back for about 20 years that I just pretended didn't hurt for a long time, but that does too. <laughs> but, you know, that's what you do. That's what you, uh, that's what you accept when you, when you love a sport. You know, you're going to get hurt. You know, if you're a boxer, you're going to break your hands or break your nose. Um, you just kind of accept that going in. We get a lot of knee, ankle, foot injuries in surfing and, um, and you know, occasional broken ribs or something, but, um, and, and plenty of cuts. You just kind of accept that that's part of the deal and you hope they don't last too long. How surprised are you by just your, your sustained ability to compete mm. over so long? I don't know. I, it's hard for me to have an outside perspective. You know, I'm 47. I'm, I've been competing. This is my 39th year competing in surfing. Um, it's hard to have an outside perspective of what it looks like to, to be 47 from someone else's point of view. Um, when I was a kid, I know that someone that was 30 seemed ancient. And when I got on tour, there was no one that was 30 years old that was still on tour. And at this point, there's only a few guys in their 30s. Um, there's no one in their 40s. I'm the oldest guy on tour by many years at this point. Um, at one point, Mark Acalupo had won a world title at 33 years old, and he was the oldest uh, world title winner at the time. Um, so, I don't know. I think on paper it looks like something you wouldn't be able to do, but I don't think of it that way. In my head, I'm still improving, and I still have a lot to... To, to learn and understand about riding waves. And, and you feel that way, that you're oh, still yeah. improving? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I probably don't put in my best effort all the time. You know, I do have some injuries and that keeps me out of the water and from practicing as much as possible. And I like to experiment and ride different equipment and, and mess around with my boards and stuff. So I think, you know, people's critique of me would be that I'm maybe not at the top of my game all the time because of that. You know, too much kind of messing around with other equipment. but after surfing basically the same kind of boards and equipment for 20, 30 years, you get kind of tired, you want to try something different, and 
that makes it fun, you know, that makes it exciting and, and like something to look forward to. And it pisses you off, the online trolls, when I, I know at times they said, well, you know, why don't you give up your spot to a younger guy? And yeah. I, I know one of the times I said that, you're like, Tenth in the world, and they're you know thirty-two yeah, yeah. world ranking yeah. well, places. You, I mean, recently I just had someone say to me last week online, you know, you should you should step aside and let one of the young kids in. I'm like, hey, tell him to take me out. It's all good. I don't mind if somebody's gonna just beat me. That's it doesn't bother me. Like, I mean, look, I don't like losing on that day. Right. But if but if clearly the level's beyond me, then that's what it is, you know. But that's not the case at this point, you know. I'm like. You know, I beat Gabriel Medina in a heat last week. He's the world champ. You know, he's current number one. He's probably going to win the world title this year. So I, I still have that ability to do that. And I don't think that I've actually competed or surfed that well this year, to be honest. I, don't, I really don't feel like I've hit anywhere close to my peak um, throughout this year. And I try to give myself a little bit of a break. It's kind of understandable coming back from almost two years off with the injury. Being this age, you know, lacking motivation sometimes. Um, Sometimes just being worn out with the travel and that kind of thing. Um, sometimes I feel like I'm just kind of hanging on just because, I don't know, just kind of hanging on, you know, it's because of what I'm used to or whatever, but. Do, do you um, feel that way? Oh, sometimes I do, yeah, yeah. Sometimes I feel like I just, I don't know how to muster up my best effort, you know. I get overwhelmed by the whole, by the whole thing sometimes, especially in big crowds. Um, but I think I'm, Funny enough, after all this time, I think I'm starting to get a hold on that. You know, I'm starting to understand that and, and find a way for myself to kind of clear my head and, and just be okay with, with all that distraction. Why indecisive about retirement? Um, it's going to be real clear to me when I retire. You know, at some point, I'm just going to say that's it. I probably won't even announce it. And, you don't until think so? This, well, I'll announce it the second it happens. I don't think I'm going to make, I don't think I'm going to make this big thing about it and drag it out. But. Um, or, or if I do, it'll be because I know exactly what feels right to, to stop. But um, when you announce that, it becomes this focus of people everywhere you go, and it's all they talk about to you, and, and it, it creates this other sort of distraction and pressure. And um, I'd like to maybe avoid that a little bit. Yeah, I know you said in our last interview it'd be pretty cool to still be competing at 50, but also wouldn't be bad to uh, play this one out uh, you compete in the Olympics and then uh, you call it quits at pipeline your favorite event in Hawaii yeah that's a possibility for sure and that it's, would be that's what somebody close to you told me yeah that, like if they were playing it out <laughs> that's what would happen yeah I think I think pipelines probably probably a pretty safe bet that that would be where I would announce my retirement what? It's just, well, I just love Pipeline. It's always been my sort of, uh, uh, I don't, it, 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 since I was a little kid, that's kind of been my baby. I always wanted to go there and understand Pipeline and surf it. And it's the event I've won most on tour and the place I've probably been most comfortable at and made all my surf buddies at in Hawaii. And, and uh, it's just the place, place I probably love the most. When you turn it off, when you take a pause to refresh your spirit, where do you go? Where do I go? Or, or what do you I, do? I yeah. usually go to the golf course. <laughs> That's kind of my thing. I like to go to the golf course because I can, you know, choose the few people I want to be around, and, and it's quiet, and it's just me and the game, and it's, an, it's another challenge. I, I like challenges, you know. Golf, is a, golf and surfing are kind of ultimate challenges, you know. They really, 
Yeah, they're, 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 and they're almost opposite each other. Surfing's all movement, you know, energy, nature, and whatever. And uh, the golf course is kind of just sitting there waiting for you to make yourself look bad. So Why do you think you like it? I don't know. I, I just like that challenge. It's such a simple thing. Hit this ball over there. But it's, uh, it comes into, like, uh, it, it, all these things have to kind of align. You know, you got to get your mind clear and calm, and your technique has to be right. And you have to make certain, it, it's kind of problem solving, you know. Golf's really problem solving, hitting the right shot. And your team was saying there are a few things they can actually put on your calendar far out. Uh, a couple of the golf tournaments That's are the, some yeah. of them. But I just missed this one. I, I'm missing one. Uh, I'm missing the Dunhill Links in uh, in Scotland this week. I just couldn't do it. I uh, we were going to be here today and tomorrow, and um, I'd love to be there. I'm texting with some friends that are over there now. Like oh, I'm a little jealous. I hope the weather's shit for you guys. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I, I love my golf, and, and and you know a lot of the surfers like it. I think it's a good balance from surfing. Surfing is just more constant high energy excitement, um, visuals. Golf is almost the opposite, you know? It's almost like a balance for us. Thank you, sir. All right, thanks. Thanks for listening to my chat with Kelly Slater. To watch more of our interview, including a tour of his outer known clothing brand headquarters, visit youtube.com slash Graham Bensinger. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Graham Bensinger. And you can visit GrahamBensinger.com for TV times in your area. If you enjoyed this episode, please give us a rating and review on iTunes or wherever else you listen. This has been the In-Depth with Graham Bensinger podcast.